Welcome back to the 10 Blocks Podcast. I'm Brian Anderson, the editor of City Journal. This week's special episode will feature a conversation between Raphael Manguel, who's a contributing editor of City Journal and a senior fellow of the Manhattan Institute, and William J. Bratton, whose storied career in policing included stints as New York City's police commissioner and L.A.'s police chief. And of course, uh, uh, Chief Bratton has written for City Journal on a number of occasions. Ralph sat down with Chief Bratton to discuss his new book, The Profession, a Memoir of Community, Race, and the Arc of Policing in America, which recounts the challenges, controversies, and triumphs of his tenure as one of the nation's most successful police executives. Hi, I'm Rafael Mangual, a senior fellow and deputy director of legal policy at the Manhattan Institute. Uh, thank you so much for joining us for another Manhattan Institute event cast brought to you by the uh, Policing and Public Safety Initiative uh, at MI. Uh, today's guest is Commissioner William Bratton. He is one of the few household names in American policing. And because of his storied career, he is a man who needs no introduction, but I'm going to give him one anyway. Uh, Commissioner Bratton's professional life, I think, can be divided into basically three categories. He currently serves as the executive chairman of Risk Advisory for Taneo, a global corporate advisory firm. Uh, before entering the private sector, Commissioner Bratton spent decades building one of the most successful careers of any police executive, serving as one of, uh, as chief of the New York City Transit Police, commissioner of the Boston Police Department, commissioner of the New York City Police Department twice, and chief of the Los Angeles Police Department. But Commissioner Bratton is also a successful author of multiple books, including his new memoir, The Profession, which is what we'll be talking with him about today. Commissioner Bratton, thank you so much for joining us. Great to be with you. And if I may, uh, the book that you referenced, which I'm very proud of, which we'll discuss, uh, is a collaborative effort with uh, my co-author, Peter Nobler, who also uh, uh, collaborated with me on my first book, which was a biography, Turnaround. So uh, uh, need to definitely acknowledge uh, Peter. He did great, great work on this. Yeah, no, I mean, it really is a, 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 a fantastic read. And I'm so glad that you're going to be with us today to talk about uh, the profession, which I actually found to be quite an engaging and insightful read. Um, it's also extremely timely, uh, given the precarious state in which the policing profession currently finds itself. Um, in particular, it seems like departments across the country are uh, at least for the last several years, they've been struggling to recruit and retain high quality officers. Uh, this is a trend that I think seems to have accelerated in recent months. Um, many people, including myself, uh, have attributed this in part to the demonization of the profession in recent years. Um, but you began your career as a cop on the heels of national turmoil involving the police, which you know became uh, the radical left's, you know, uh, one of the radical left's objects of derision in the 1960s. Uh, and so when your career kind of kicked off in policing, yeah, I wanted to ask you, did you feel like you were going into a noble and respected profession back then? And and how did the perception of police change throughout your career? I mean, you know, what and kind of and answering those two questions, I'd like you to just talk to us a bit about you know what you make of the recruitment crisis the police departments are currently working through. Speaking about going into policing 1970, the fulfillment of a dream from childhood. Uh, just back from Vietnam War, three years as a military policeman, walking a sentry dog, no less, uh, into the Boston Police Department at a time of expansion of that department as a result, uh, interestingly enough, for the creation of a union. And one of the contract uh, negotiations that they were successful at 
was increasing the size of the department to ensure that all police cars would have two officers in those cars. Boston was moving from walking beats into mobile uh, operations with vehicles. I started walking a beat, but within six months, I was in one of those cars. The idea of a profession that I thought I was entering, I thought it was a profession, but as I talk about in the book, uh, it really was not. Uh, a profession has many hallmarks, if you will, a body of knowledge, a strong history of research and learning and improvement. And uh, it, it just didn't have any of those things in the 1970s, that uh, criminal justice research was in its infancy. Uh, policing was thought to be brutal, corrupt, racist uh, as a entity around the country, especially coming out of the 1950s and 60s, the turmoil of the civil rights era, the anti-war movement. So I was disappointed when I came into policing with the motivation. I thought I was coming into a profession, uh, coming in with the idea of uh, being respected and doing good things. And the department I joined was corrupt. It was racist. It was brutal. Uh, it was also embroiled in the terrible desegregation controversies of the 1970s in Boston. Boston was one of the most racially divided cities in the North. Uh, its neighborhoods were uh, definitely uh, lined up by ethnic entities and uh, races, black neighborhoods, Italian neighborhoods, Irish neighborhoods with very little co-mixing or mingling. And its schools were all neighborhood schools. So there was an effort to desegregate not only schools, but public housing. And the turmoil of those 10 years uh, uh, was really a birthing experience for me, understanding the complexity of what I deal with in the next 40 years. But I was ready to leave that uh, profession around 1973 or 74 to go to a smaller police agency because of the disillusionment of what I found in the Boston Police Department. Uh, but fortunately, uh, there was an event that occurred in Boston that changed my life and in many respects may have changed the uh, the progress of American policing over the next 40 years. If I may, Raphael, just step away for a moment, your comment about the uh, diminishing of police numbers. Uh, in 1994, the crime bill, policing gained 100,000 additional officers. It went up to almost 800,000 to combat the 25-year rise in crime in the 70s and 80s. The last figure I saw, and you, you, you were great at figures, much more so than I am, the statistics, is something that we might be at around 670,000 officers, uh, if even at that number. So that's a huge drop which is probably contributing to the significant rise in crime, violent crime we're experiencing throughout America at the moment. No, I think that's exactly right. And you're exactly right about the number. I mean, in 2013, as recently as, as, as that, we were uh, we had about 725,000 armed uniform personnel uh, working in police agencies across the country. That number has now dropped below 680,000, uh, which is an extremely troubling trend. And you know, just just uh, yesterday, the Police Executive Research Forum came out with uh, another really troubling data point showing that um, police retirement spiked 18% last year compared to the year before. Um, and, and so you yourself just mentioned that you had considered leaving a big city department and part of the partly because of the disillusionment that you felt and so what kept you on? I mean, you know, what, what kept you close uh, to the Boston Police Department? What kept you on the trajectory that, that you found yourself on? I talk uh, in the book and introduce the readers to a transformative figure in my life and uh, in certainly the Boston the Police Department of the 1970s. But uh, 
his influence, uh, the changes he brought about the Boston Police Department, carried forward over the next 50 years. And I'll explain that in a moment. But his name was Robert de Grazia. Uh, he was coming out of the St. Louis County Police Department, I think, as a superintendent or colonel of that department. and was brought into Boston by the then mayor, Kevin White, who was hoping to be named a vice presidential candidate uh, in the upcoming presidential race, but was concerned about the image of the Boston Police Department, being corrupt, racist, out of date. And he brought in this outsider, uh, something that was not widely done back in the 60s and 70s, that uh, the idea of bringing an outsider into a very hidebound police department. And uh, within his two to three year term, a short period of time, come on, mirrored my short time, first time in the NYPD under Giuliani, he tipped that department upside down, shook out the corrupt officers, dealt with the racism issues, the brutality, and uh, effectively brought the Boston Police Department out of the 19th century into the 20th century. And in some respects, uh, it was probably the most enlightened time for that organization. Uh, and the reason I stayed was that just watching the transformation, that uh, getting rid of the corrupt detective sergeants who controlled the graft in that department. Uh, he brought in a bunch of outside whiz kids, uh, civilians that uh, to help reinvigorate the department's planning, research, training, uh, every aspect of the department, and as importantly, the promotional process. The average age of a patrolman in the Boston Police Department, there were no women at that time, was 47. The average age of sergeants and above was well into the 50s. So there I was at age 24, 25, uh, uh, basically looking at, take me 20 years to make the rank of sergeant in that department. He flipped that upside down, changed the promotional process, an assessment center. He had to read eight or nine books uh, that were phenomenal books on management and on issues of race, very much in uh, play at that time. And uh, he just he just changed the policing world. I took that first exam that he put together, the new exam. I came in, uh, I think, number one on the written exam and number two overall. And so at the age of, uh, I think it was 27, I was a sergeant, one of 60 new sergeants in the Boston Police Department. And some of the people I was exposed to, one who you're very familiar with, Bob Wasserman, who uh, is one of the most uncelebrated individuals in American policing, for a personal mentor, colleague of mine for 50 years, but who had profound influence on American policing behind the scenes. And uh, out of that class of early promotees came myself, Paul Evans, Billy Evans, subsequent police commissioners in Boston, uh, Kathy O'Toole a couple of years later, uh, a succession of police leaders. He had planted the seed, like Johnny Appleseed, he was planting the seed of future police leaders. And uh, I, 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 I think I can say without fear of contradiction that my place in American policing over the last 40 years has been significant. And it would not have happened Without, without Bob Wasserman, uh, excuse me, uh, well, Bob Wasserman, who uh, basically was one of the key aides to the Grazia. So he's been my role model, this idea of going to an organization in crises and being able to transform it, but transform it in a way that when you leave, even after a short period of time, it's been transformed so much that the people coming behind you, the Jim Collins uh, uh, book on uh, uh, good to great management, get the right people on the bus, wrong people off the bus, and then make sure they're all in the right seats. So when you get out of the driver's seat, 
somebody else on that bus gets into the driver's seat and it still keeps going down the road to the destination that you set. Uh, an extraordinary time in uh, policing at the, the 70s. And uh, uh, he was not much uh, liked or admired by his contemporaries because he described most police chiefs at that time like as pet rocks. You turn them over, <laughs> there was nothing there. I, I remember that passage in the book. Can imagine how he, that uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I can't imagine that that went over well. I remember reading that passage in the book and 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 audibly laughing out loud. Um, you know, you mentioned a couple things uh, so far. You've mentioned the crime spike. You also mentioned uh, the chapter on whiz kids, and so um, I wanted to to ask you another question along these lines. Before I do, though, I just want to remind our audience who's watching live that you should feel free to submit your questions on whatever platform you're watching us on. Uh, I'll do my best to work those in uh, throughout the course of this conversation. Um, so, you know, of course, the, the United States saw one of the biggest single year spikes in homicides in 2020 uh, that we've seen, at least in my lifetime. And the source of that has, has been a topic of, of a lot of debate. You know, some people blame the economic stress wrought by the COVID-19 pandemic. Others blame the decrease in police legitimacy. I myself have suggested that the crime spike seems likely due, at least in part, to shifts in policy that have both raised the transaction cost of enforcing the law while at the same time lowering those of breaking it. Um, but I want to just read a, a short edited excerpt from, from your chapter on Wids Kids and, and get your reaction. So you write that by the end of the 1970s, economic circumstances caused government to start cutting back on resources. Budget considerations created deinstitutionalization. De the court system began to reevaluate America's way of looking at the law and a sizable number of actions that would previously have taken people off the streets became decriminalized. Now, in the last year alone, a New York Times report found that 30 states have passed more than 140 police and criminal justice reforms. We've seen a steady rate of decarceration over the last decade, somewhere in the range of 20%, as well as a 25% decline in arrests. We've seen bail reforms, sentencing reforms, the election of progressive prosecutors in big cities across the country. And so my question is, do you see any parallels between what's happening in the policy space today and what was going on in the 1970s? And how should we be thinking about reform moving forward, given uh, your experience with, with that world? I'm going to echo in describing the 70s, uh, uh, George Kelling's analysis, and I use it frequently in my speeches. Uh, in describing the eras of transition over the last 50 years in policing and going back 60 to 70 years into the development of the professional model of policing in the 50s and 60s. And George uh, eloquently described what had happened in the 70s uh, very simplistically, which was his expertise. He, he took complex issues and made, made them easy to understand. Three things happened in the 70s that compounded uh, the problem for crime and disorder over the next 20 years. Deinstitutionalization, the first D, uh, letting out hundreds of thousands of poor souls from badly managed mental health facilities. Well intended, but when they got out into the streets, there was nothing there for them. They weren't centers to help them, home care. It, it just, it was disgraceful in some respects what government did to save money with the idea that isn't this great, we're gonna basically let these people out of these prison-like circumstances. <clears throat> Excuse me. Secondly, we began to de-police uh, streets. In the 1970s, similar to what's happening right now, the numbers of police declined dramatically. New York City, which we're intimate with, in the midst of its budget crises, lost, laid off five to 7,000 officers who were laid off for years. 
And at one time, the New York City Police Force, which today numbers about 33 or 34,000, was down to about 19,000 officers at a time of growing crime and disorder on the streets. The third concept of the third D is decriminalization, that so many of the laws that police could work with in those days were taken away because police had abused them. The use of uh, drunkenness, drunkenness was now determined to be an illness or disease, no longer crime, uh, 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 loitering, uh, idle and disorderly behavior. Uh, many things that police had used as tools and abused were taken away. Also, there was, uh, it wasn't so much a decriminalization, but there was also a tightening of controls on police, uh, necessary tightening of controls, the Miranda decision, the Escobedo decision, the uh, uh, many of the rules, constitutional tightening of guidelines. And what was happening simultaneously, fewer police on the streets, fewer tools to work with with those police in the streets, and a large population of people engaging in erratic behavior who effectively became the foundation of the homeless population. If you look, you probably won't see the term homeless the way we use it today until the 70s. 50 years later, we're seeing the same thing all over again, but we're also seeing the effects 50 years later of society's inability to deal with the mentally ill, inability to deal with what grew in the 80s, which was the drug problem, and the idea of, uh, as we now into 2021, what's going on right now? We have the defund the police movement, reducing the size of police forces. We have the decriminalization movement, where so many of the laws uh, as part of the criminal justice reform effort that police use to deal with issues on the streets are being taken away. And what is the deinstitutionalization happening now? We are emptying our prisons and jails at a rapid rate and what's coming out of those deals? 50% of people who are mentally ill because we had no mental institutions to put them into, we put them in the jail. So they're back on the streets, but also a lot of hardened criminals are being let out with no supervision, like they did with the mentally ill back in the 70s, with no jobs, with effectively no controls over their behavior. So deja vu all over again, Yogi Bear, uh, Fred Siegel's The Future Once Happened Here, What Happened in the 70s, uh, is now happening again. The parallels, uh, to me, are fascinating. And uh, I write about a lot of this in the book as you, you, you're referencing. And uh, the good thing is that we can, there's an expression we open the book with, as you saw. Uh, uh, those who don't know their history are doomed to repeat it. Uh, those who know police know we don't know our history. Uh, I know our police history. It's, it's something I study, and I love history, so I understand the history. So that, that's the title of the book, The Arc of Policing Over 50 Years. We don't have to reinvent the world. We don't have to uh, effectively start from scratch to reform the criminal justice system. So much of what we did was successful. Could it be modified? Could it have better outcome now that we know some of the unintended consequences? Certainly. But one of my frustrations, and certainly ours, Raphael, as we engage in so many extensive conversations between the two of us, is this new term that's been applied to them by uh, Bill Meyer and others, uh, progressophobia. The progressive group basically has a phobia for anything that came before their ideas. And so that basically erases the last 50 years of policing as they seek to reform policing. And that's crazy. It's absolutely crazy because 
despite our failures, we had a lot of successes, a lot of things that worked. Uh, I think I think that's 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 really really important for people to understand. It's just you know the the arc of of our history in in terms of criminal justice policy. And you know when I read your book and I, I see so many parallels uh, to what is happening today, I see us repeating that history. And what I fear is that you know what came after the 1970s will will come after what we're doing right now, which was one of the most incredible crime spikes. Uh, in urban American history, in the 1980s and 90s, saw just untold numbers uh, of people uh, shot, killed, wounded, robbed. In 1990, New York City saw 2,262 homicides, more than 114,000 uh, robberies. Um, and you know, so, it's, you know, it's even more frightening than that. Raphael, if I can interrupt for a moment, 19, <laughs> 1990 also saw 5,000 people shot on the streets of New York. And I think the murder count will be even higher now, but we have so many improved trauma centers that a lot of those shooting victims are saved. That would have been 20 years ago, homicide victims. And the shooting number is the one that most frightens me, not so much the homicide number, but the shooting number, because that's the, the real issue. But it is this idea that uh, uh, as it took 20, almost 25 years to get to 1990, it took us a year to get to 2021. So the dramatic explosion of crime after almost 30 years of a decline, it was like the pandemic. Nobody saw it coming. And all of a sudden it was here with such devastating effect. And that's what's the frightening aspect about it. In the 21st century, everything is accelerated anyway around the whole world of internet, it's uh, digital. But uh, the, the old fashioned thing about crime and disorder uh, how did it just fall apart so quickly? It's just—I I still scratch my head about uh, what the hell happened. No, I know it. It really is a, a disconcerting and precarious time that I think we're living in, and I, I think people in American cities are starting to feel it. And one of the things that you talked about uh, in your chapter on community policing, you know, was this this sense that you know people weren't going to put up with untold amounts of disorder. Eventually, everyone had a, a breaking point. And you talked about the suburbanization that, that that followed the crime increase. And when I think about, you know, the the financial positions of, of American cities today, you know, they rely on a, a a relatively small slice of their population for their tax base. Um, but these are also people with means to leave uh, if if safety is not uh, something that they view as guaranteed to them. And I wonder what you what you make of of the risk of that happening again. Do you see? a move away from cities as crime gets out of uh, out of control do you think that that ultimately harms uh the ability of municipalities to fund their departments to the requisite degree that's, that's going to be necessary to get this problem under control i do in the sense that uh that 50-year repeat of the cycle what happened in the 70s that uh <clears throat> american cities were dying american cities were being written off basically everybody the whites who could afford to to get away from school desegregation, housing desegregation, we're fleeing excuse me, through the suburbs. <clears throat> and we're seeing that potential once again. And with the cities, what's left behind in the cities is the poor, the minority, uh, and cities that in many instances rely on not so much manufacturing like they used to years ago, services, uh, rely now on tourism, rely on the ability to attract outsiders, whether to come and work or to come and be entertained, to come and be educated. If those cities are seen as dangerous places, 
People who can afford to are going to look to send their kids to school elsewhere. They're going to look to go someplace else for their entertainment. And that's something that New York's going to have to watch very closely as we hope there's a rebirth in the fall of the theater district, et cetera, uh, colleges and universities as they begin to reopen once again for kids coming back to school. If your parent's going to pay $75,000 to send your kid to NYU, and you're seeing night after night in the news, Washington Square Park generating into chaos, is that where you're going to send your kid? USC had an experience years ago. USC, uh, he sees over a billion dollars a year with Asian students attending USC, principally Chinese. They had a young Chinese student murdered on the periphery of the campus several years ago. And the fall off on uh, Asian applications to that school was immediate and phenomenal. Uh, so that those are issues that uh, are going to have to be looked at going forward. That we saw a time when Americans were fleeing the cities. Uh, I, think, I talk about in the book, my two favorite courses when I was attending college with a federally government sponsored program to educate police as part of the effort to professionalize the profession in the 1970s were urban geography and art appreciation. Urban geography with Professor Betsy Hussein talked about the importance of cities, how that's where cultures were generated and where people could come together. Uh, and so I was reading this and it was exciting at the time that Boston was dying. And secondly, art appreciation, understanding uh, the idea from that uh, wonderful instructor, Dr. Avenides, the idea of, I'd look at a painting and I didn't like it. Renaissance artist, et cetera. I'm somebody that likes the Impressionist or Norman Rockwell. But what he taught me was to understand, to look beyond, to look behind the picture. What was its impact on history, the Renaissance, for example? He taught me a very important lesson for police to see, to see each other, not to judge somebody by the color of their skin, the fact that they were wearing, what the clothes they were wearing, what type of hairstyle they had, but to see them. And that's so important uh, today as we go forward uh, for our police officers, our new police officers, our role to learn to see people beyond just the image in front of them. No, that, that's 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 quite inspiring. Um, you, you talk about you know the danger of, of people leave, leaving cities, and of course, you know one of the 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 biggest achievements of the of of the 1990s was the urban crime decline, which brought people back into American cities and really. I think served as 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 the basis for the revitalization, their 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 newfound dynamism. Um, and when I think about that crime decline, I think it's safe to say that we would both agree that broken windows, a theory posited first by George Kelling and James Q. Wilson, played a role in producing the great crime decline mm -hmm. in the 1990s. But you know, when I read your depiction of policing in the 1970s, it wasn't obvious uh, to me that that there would be such an appetite to look to the social sciences for insights about how to improve policing. Um, so I, I was just wondering if you could just talk to us a little bit about the, the, the cultural shift that, that led to the evolution of policing as a science. Um, mm -hmm. And also tell us you know, what it was about broken windows that resonated so much with you um, as, as a police executive. This audience, I'm sure, is very familiar with the term broken windows and the idea of references quality of life. Uh, I was very fortunate, uh, a number of experiences in the 1970s as I was growing up in the Boston Police Department, that uh, after, shortly after being promoted to sergeant, I had the opportunity to meet the uh, 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 commissioner of the Metropolitan Police in London and with Tu Bob de Grazie, who was hosting a visit by him. 
And uh, he exposed us to something I had never heard of, Sir Robert Peel, creator of the Metropolitan Police in London, 1829. And he shared with the group that met with him uh, Peel's nine principles of policing. Uh, that's my Bible. Moses had 10 commandments. I have the nine principles of policing. And the first one is the basic mission for which the police exist is to prevent, prevent crime and disorder. In the 70s, and Kelling wrote eloquently about this, as we come out of the 60s, society, government, political leaders said to the police, you cannot prevent crime. You can only respond to it. Society is going to have to work on what causes crime, poverty, unemployment, racism. So while we fix that, boy, they really fixed it, didn't they? That you, the police, you should just focus on improved response to crime, 911 calls, numbers of arrests so you can show activity. But it was all after the fact. I was very fortunate that uh, as a newly promoted sergeant and with Bob Wasserman's influence and then subsequently when I met Kelling in the 80s, I was assigned to help uh, develop a neighborhood policing program in a very distressed area of Boston that housed some of the leading institutions of Boston. And I write about this in the book, Northeastern, Boston University, the Museum of uh, uh, Fine Arts. Uh, 21 of the leading institutions in Boston were concentrated in an area called Back Bay, Fenway, Kenmore. And the crime rate there was phenomenal uh, in the 70s. And what was also phenomenal was the disorder, prostitution, uh, aggressive begging, the homeless, uh, graffiti, uh, all the things that drive the public crazy. So very early on, after having been exposed to Sir Robert Peel's emphasis on crime and disorder, I saw firsthand as I went to community meetings that I organized, people didn't want to talk about the serious crime. There was no shortage of that. They wanted to talk about stuff that was driving them crazy. The prostitute on their doorstep at night, the gang on the corner raising hell all hours of the night. And why weren't the police doing anything about that? Well, in the 70s and 80s, police, as we, as we reduced our numbers, as we basically pulled back, we focused on responding to 911 calls and to serious crime. And officers were no longer walking a beat, so we lost intimacy with the neighborhood. When we got air conditioning in 1978 in our police cars, we just rolled up the windows and we lost even more contact with the neighborhoods. And so I early on was exposed to what Kelling and Wilson wrote so beautifully about five years later. The idea that it's important to focus on not only serious crime, but what the patient, and every community is a patient, basically, and police chiefs are doctors. You have to listen to your patient. What do they want you to work on? I understood for the next 50, 40 years that you had to work on both. If you only worked on one, you were not going to cure the patient. But that's what Kelling and Wilson, uh, as social scientists, basically, uh, and they were criticized heavily. They still are that uh, uh, a lot of the criminal justice research community hated George. Why? Because George got off his butt and got out into the streets and walked around. Most of the other characters sat in their classrooms and their laboratories, and they wrote about stuff that they weren't touching and feeling and smelling. George was out there. And when he teamed up with Wilson, uh, Wilson with his eloquence as well as his standing, something that the Manhattan Institute fully appreciates. And Manhattan Institute, I think, really appreciates the association with those two great leaders. I certainly do because they were, uh, the relationship with Kelling for me was one of 40 years of intimate friendship and learning constantly from that great man. So, you know, when you first came to New York City, you didn't come to the NYPD, you came to the Transit Police. 
And you, know, you, you talked a lot about the initiatives that, that you undertook in that role um, to address the broken windows underground, the subway fare evasion, the graffiti on trains, um, you know, having cops to have a visible presence, um, the bus buses upstairs, et cetera. Um, you know, did, did you know before you got here that you were going to incorporate the work of, of George Kelly into how you were gonna police the subways in New York City? And you know, with subway crime in New York on the rise again, do you think that there's a degree to which the department has gotten away from from that kind of enforcement? And 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 what would be your advice to uh, to, to the NYPD moving forward on that? Okay. Uh, basically, a contemporary bulletin just saw a news clip just before we got on the air here uh, that subway crime finally is going the other way. That with the surge of more officers in the subway, they've actually been able to reduce it uh, based on a report that was just released this morning. So good news. But going back to the uh, entrance into New York through the transit police. In some respects, that was like uh, in baseball, uh, I was uh, basically uh, recruited into uh, the minor league that, uh, and I went with the hope that I eventually I'd get called up to the majors. And Kelly and Wasserman were already working for a year in the subways of New York with uh, Bob Kiley, who was the chairman of the MTA. And they had been brought in very specifically to deal with the disorder issues and then subsequently the crime issues, which were uh, growing in the subway as they were in uh, the streets of New York. Uh, they both had known me for a number of years and uh, felt that this would be an opportunity for me, uh, who was an adherent to uh, what they were espousing, the importance of crime and disorder, that so much of what was going on in the subway was the perception of crime based on the quality of life issues that were so prevalent there. And so they uh, dangled a carrot in front of me that had come to uh, New York, uh, to the, the minor league, if you will, the transit police. And who knows, if you uh, successfully, you might get called up to the majors, the NYPD. And no disrespect to the transit police, but they really were considered the uh, O police. The idea when somebody said, uh, I work for the NY, for the New York Police Department, they'd say, oh, where? Transit. And people say, oh, because trans was a separate department at that time. And uh, thank God I had that experience with transit because it really proved the concept of crime and disorder. It really showed that uh, a 25-year surge in crime and disorder in the subway, we reversed it in less than a year and a half. And it was so significant, Giuliani, who had lost the election to Dave Dinkins in 89, running again in 93, asked to meet with Kelly and I, and we talked to him about what had gone on in transit and why transit was so successful reducing crime when the city streets were not seeing the same level of success. And he asked, well, if you uh, could, could you do the same thing in the streets of New York? And we said, certainly. And that's how I ended up getting hired and bringing George in as one of my advisors as police commissioner of the NYPD. And I think, uh, uh, not only talking about it in the book of the profession, but I think this audience that we're talking to certainly understand uh, the rest is history, so they say. We come in and basically, although the crime turnaround in America began in the subways of New York, the success on the streets of New York, where it was much more visible, really began the catalyst of the crime turnaround in America for so many reasons. Quality of life enforcement, broken windows, CompStat focusing on serious crime in a very different way. And the idea of uh, the old adage, if you make it in New York, you can make it anywhere. 
New York was viewed as the most uh, dangerous major city in the world at that time. Right. And in a few years, it was rated as the most, uh, the safest large city in the world. No, that's exactly right. And and for many New Yorkers, this city is 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 largely considered the center of the universe. Um, and for that reason, uh, I, I think some of our audience may not know as much about your your time as chief of police in Los Angeles, which is another very large city with with an incredibly troubling crime problem. Um, if you go back to the eighties and nineties, uh, I don't know if, if there was a department that was ever as vilified as the LAPD. I mean, in in popular culture, in music. Um, you, know, you had, you know, NWA at the police. I mean, this was, you know, it really was at the center of, of the, the, the discussion about problems within the policing profession uh, during the high crime time of the, the 80s and 90s. And I think that vilification came at a time in which, you know, LA was really ground zero for America's gang violence problem. Yet, uh, somehow you managed to, to oversee a period of crime reductions and reform during your tenure there. I mean, there was a consent decree in place. Uh, and, and in your chapter on getting to the heart of the black community, you write that you were, quote, able to influence change in the MY, in the LAPD culture by significantly improving the training that they were receiving at the academy, um, which is, is something that was was directed by the consent decree back then. You also noted that the department uh, received better equipment, which which did not seem to be what you expected, given as you wrote that that mayors tended to see police departments as, as a potential liability of that headline waiting to happen. Um, you know, so in our current moment, calls for police reform has really coalesced around slogans like defund the police, um, to which you've responded, we should refund the police. And so the question is, is you know, what do you tell people who argue that you can't achieve reform while rewarding police departments with more funding? I mean, do, do you see a tension between the calls for defund and the calls for improvements? I certainly do. Uh, I'm very active in uh, uh, rebuking the defund the police movement label that at this critical time with rising crime, with rising dissatisfaction with the police, to reform the police to the level of expectation that so many want to see police improve, it's going to require refunding because police have for too long in America been asked to do too much with too little in the sense that the burden of the homelessness, the burden of the emotionally disturbed, burden of the uh, 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 drug addicted has fallen to the police to deal with while at the same time, the training that's so necessary to deal with it, the equipment, et cetera, uh, the ability to recruit people capable of dealing with those complex societal issues has just not kept pace. So the LA chapter that you speak about was uh, significant in the book because it spoke to dealing with a department that had been at war with this black community for 50 years. And the issue of race and police, they're entwined. You can't separate the two. And you're never going to resolve police reform or ever resolve the issue of race reformation without basically uh, addressing both issues at the same time. They're joined like this and you can't separate them. So one of the great successes in my professional life, I believe, was in L.A. going into a department in crises, and I always seek to go into departments in crises because out of crises comes opportunity, but you can also accelerate the change. And one of the accelerations you can change uh, uh, more quickly is the culture of an organization. And every organization I've gone into, I've changed the culture. Uh, in the case of the LAPD, it was a culture of 
animosity toward the black community directed by the political leadership of that city for 50 years and the police leadership for 50 years. Darrell Gates, Bill Parker, legendary police leaders who effectively uh, uh, created a culture of intolerance of blacks in Los Angeles. So I think one of my more successful times as chief was Los Angeles, where we successfully addressed the race crisis, successfully addressed changing the cultural department, successfully addressed the crime problem, and I think uh, significantly uh, varnished the very tarnished badge of the LAPD, probably one of the most famous badges in the world, going back to dragnet days. It's so recognizable. And uh, uh, I've had the great pleasure of leading two of the three most iconic police departments in the world. And I think in both instances, changing their cultures to cultures that were much more proactive, much more reform oriented. The third iconic entity uh, agency I would uh, uh, describe is the Metropolitan Police in London. Uh, they're the ones that the books are made about. They're the ones that the movies are made about. And uh, I, I almost had a trifecta. I talk about it in the book. I came very close to being uh, asked to head the Metropolitan Police back about uh, 10, 12 years ago. Uh, I was not a British citizen of the British Isles, however, so I could not take that position. Uh, uh, would have loved to have, Ricky. We always joked, had a backpack, ready to go in a moment's notice. But going back to L.A., that... Uh, uh, it shows how you can really, with the right leadership, the right team, I had incredible people, both from within the department and outside working with me. I had strong political support. Mayor Hahn, who brought me to LA, understood by appointing me and removing a black chief who was not particularly successful, but uh, basically the black community was still supportive of, it would cost him re-election. And he, he, he did it. How many politicians do you know will make a conscious decision uh, to do the right thing from their perspective for their constituents, knowing it's going to end their political career? And it did. And uh, he was defeated in the next election. However, uh, by that time, my own popularity was such that the, camp the mayor that succeeded him campaigned on the idea that if elected, he would ask me to stay. And the morning after his election, seven o'clock in the morning, he was in my office making the offer to stay, ask me to stay. So there's the irony of it. One mayor loses an election uh, because of me. Another mayor wins an election because of me. It's <laughs> only in America can something like that actually happen. Yeah, oh, yeah. I mean, that's that's a fascinating story. And, you know, I think it's true that you wouldn't see the same willingness among political leaders to take that kind Not of chance today. The political what are the other things? Political cowardice of today, Raphael, is phenomenal. Phenomenal. Yeah. No, I agree. But one of the other things I don't think you would have seen, um, you would see today that, that that was in place back then was a consent decree that actually prioritized improving the police department by funding it. Um, I, I think a lot of police executives might be weary today about taking a position in a department that's currently under the thumb of the federal government. And that's something that we've seen uh, grow over the over the last 10 years, the number of police departments under consent decree. And it would seem to me as an outsider looking in that modern consent decrees don't seem to be overly concerned with uh, improving crime. 
and if, if I'm, you know, as, as someone who just, you know, reads these things as, as an outsider, I, I don't see them as calculating in any way uh, to produce improvements in the quality of life for people living in those communities beyond um, getting behind popular reform measures uh, for the department. And, you know, do, do you see that as a problem? Do you think that there needs to be a change in uh, the nature of federal oversight? And what do you say to police leaders today who are weary about going into departments in crisis, uh, despite potential opportunities for 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 growth and, and, and improvement uh, because of what they see as a kind of hamstringing uh, mm -hmm. by the federal government? Well, let me speak to the uh, very significant issue you raised. Consent decrees is currently 50 of them. The federal government is actively engaged in seeking more of them. Some of them are by mandate, others are actually requested by chiefs of police and mayors. So there's different types. But in the case of LA, I had the experience of being part of the federal monitorship, the monitoring team, looking at the LAPD for almost a year before I applied for the chief of police job. So it provided a, uh, an entrance way into that department in a very intimate way. So going through the door, something I've always tried to do to effectively uh, understand what I was getting myself into. I had the intimacy of being a federal monitor. Uh, the issue you raised uh, is correct, that the federal monitorships are intended to focus on policy and oftentimes to deal with uh, issues around racial injustice and are not focused on dealing with crime. And indeed, if there's a deficiency of consent decrees, uh, it, measures do you meet these standards in the case of the lapd there were 700 some odd standards that had to be met with 95 percent compliance before they could come out from under the consent decree but nowhere in the consent decree and nowhere in most consent decrees does it measure well what is the impact on the city and the community as it relates to the issue you raise crime did relationships improve with the community did crime go down uh, and it's a deficiency, but it's also a limitation of the federal government in terms of what it can impose on a civil rights violation. What I was doing with the consent decree in LA was using it basically as my hammer and chisel to uh, get money out of the city council to effectively uh, modernize the police department under the guise of basically meeting the policy requirements for better training, better facilities, et cetera, but also then uh, using it uh, to deal with the crime initiatives that I was putting in place. So any police chief going into an organization crisis, you're going to have to deal with policy, you're going to have to deal with culture, and you're going to have to deal with crime and disorder. Consent decrees deal with policy, deal with, uh, but don't deal with crime and disorder. Uh, so if I were a chief, young chief today looking for a new assignment, I would actually look for a department under a consent decree because you can use and leverage that consent decree for purposes for uh, separate from what it was originally intended. It can effectively uh, uh, allow you to batten down the doors of resistance to funding the, the department. And uh, at the same time, many chiefs, myself included, are critical of some consent decree uh, aspects, including professional monitors. There are several out there who basically are never going to let go of the department they're monitoring because it's it's a it's a money pit, and they've been there for. If you have a, a monitor who's in the place for ten or fifteen years, don't you think it's time to get rid of the monitor if they haven't come into compliance? Is and they get rid of chief after chief after chief, mayor after mayor after mayor, but they never get rid of the monitor. Well, there's something wrong there with that picture.
I, I couldn't agree more. Commissioner Bryden, I, I, I want to thank you more. again for another incredibly thoughtful conversation. I wish we could go on for another hour. For our audience, uh, again, the book is The Profession, A Memoir of Community, Race, and the Arc of Policing in America. Um, there's a link in the uh, in the chat box, I think, that you should be seeing if you're interested in, in purchasing the book. Um, also, uh, please consider you know, following the Manhattan Institute's research from the Policing and Public Safety Initiative. You can do that on our website. If you're able, also please consider supporting the Institute uh, at the link that you see in the chat. Remember that MI is a nonprofit organization and our work depends on support from people like you. Uh, Commissioner Braden, thank you so very much. Thank you. Great hour. Raphael, you're the best. The absolute best. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for the weekly 10 Blocks podcast featuring urban policy and cultural commentary with City Journal editors, contributors, and special guests.